You're listening to Just One of the Guys, a show which is completely Glenn Close, Boiling Pot, and Bunny Rabbit Free. Every time I think I'm close, you run away, you tell me no, could it be I'm doing something wrong? I just want you to respect me and include me in your life, but perhaps I'm coming on too strong. I'm your dirty little secret, and it's time to pay the price. You were naughty, now I got you by the balls. We were callous, now I'm pregnant, and I'm gonna tell your wife. All it takes is a phone call. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet radio site. Hello, my name's Sean Eagle, and it's my job on the show to cover the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, and to put a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. Guy Gardner, unfortunately, again, is sadly missing from the books this time, but Kyle Rayner is there, especially in the new core book. If you remember in last episode, Kyle had gone off into space and had recruited a new Green Lantern Corps, consisting of a ragtag group of people, and he unfortunately made kind of a bad mistake in one of the choices of the Green Lanterns, and it's kind of come back to haunt it. In the second part of the prestige format book, The New Corps, we see how Kyle and his new recruits figure out how to go up against the evil McGann, the most unfortunately named Green Lantern possibly of all time. And we'll see whether these new recruits fare throughout the rest of the title. Hint, hint, as Kyle is the only Green Lantern until the Jeff Johns reboot, you can kind of imagine they don't. Which is disappointing, because this was a really great book by Chuck Dixon, which really exemplified the Green Lantern story. Unfortunately, Green Lantern number 111 doesn't quite do that. Oh, Fatality's back, and Jon Stewart and Marin and Jade are there, but other than that, it's just more... Bad Art by Terry Austin and Daryl Bennett. It's kind of got me down. But one of the things that doesn't have me down are some wonderful promos that I'm going to be playing. So, after I play the promos, I'll get back to Green Lantern number 111. Plus, I will get back to something I haven't done in a while. Your emails. A bunch of damn dirty apes. It's me, Maury Clawhammer. Don't you recognize me? Of course you don't. I've gone back to my simian roots. Maury Clawhammer is going ape. That's right. Coming soon at twotruefreaks.com, it's Planet of the Apes Month. Hey, look at me. I'm peeling a banana with my feet while watching all five of them monkey movies. Now I'm reading a chimpanzee comic while swinging on my swinging tire swing. Woohoo! Then it's toy time when some kid throws me a vintage Mego Dr. Zayas action figure. And I'm gonna put it where the sun don't shine in front of a whole third grade class. And nobody's gonna bat an eye. Then I'm gonna pull it out and I'm gonna fling it at him. It's a whole month of monkey madness. Coming soon at TwoTrueFreaks.com. Check it out. I'm devolving by the second. Or is it the other way around? I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am back. You need to take the trash out. Hey, I'm trying to make a trailer for a podcast. Oh, you mean Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast? Why, yes, that is what I mean. The show where you and I discuss all things geeky. Comics, TV, movies, books, you name it. Well, are you going to tell them that you can find the show at www.supermatescomic.blogspot.com? Well, I think you kind of already did. And that new shows will be posted bi-weekly every two weeks? I was, but you just kind of did that, too. Well, see, now you can go take out the trash. Great. So join us, Cindy. And Chris. Franklin. For the Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast at supermatescomic.blogspot.com. 
And we are back. And it's time to get into something that I haven't done in a while. A little bit of a little thing that I like to call listener email. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and because it's been such a long time since I've read any email, I've got a few backed up. A lot of them are from Scott Davis, and so I'm going to take the Professor Allen approach of reading the emails and sort of summarizing them rather than reading them as a whole. Uh, once I get caught up and everything, I'll start going back to reading the emails in their entirety. But for right now, just to get through a lot of them, I'm going to read them sort of in a summary manner. Uh, first one we caught from Scott is entitled Three of a Kind, and it deals with Green Lantern 96, Green Arrow 130, and The Flash number 125. This was the crossover I did with Dave Walker and Michael Bailey. Scott really enjoyed it. He he was kind of amused with our opening intro thing that we did about meeting on the uh, pier going for our little vacation. So thank you for that. That was kind of unplanned. Uh, he uh, liked uh, Green Lantern number 96. And also commented on the sort of phallic imagery of Kyle standing over the cannon. He enjoyed the uh, cover of Connor fighting the shark on uh, Green Lantern number or Green Arrow number one thirty, and he found the uh, issue of the Flash number one thirty five kind of depressing, in that he believes that the forty people, forty two people that died in the issue, were probably eventually eaten by the sharks. So, yeah, that's not fun at all. He did mention that the Canadian hockey team won the gold medal, and he was pretty proud of that. So congratulations to Canada for winning the medal, the gold medal in the Olympics. Uh, didn't catch the game, unfortunately. He then sent me an email entitled Nort Meets Lorflees, which has an image of, I guess it's Lorflees number 10, where Nort, in the New 52, tackles Lorflees. And I haven't been reading too much of the New 52 stuff, uh... All-Star Western is pretty much all I've been doing, and unfortunately, that might be coming to an end. Hopefully, fingers crossed, and we'll keep going. But I might just have to pick this up, because even though it doesn't look like the North that I'm used to, the sort of Joe Staten look, just to have North in the New 52 would just kind of make me happy. And to see how he handles Larflees, oh, it could be really fun. His next letter was entitled, entitled Future Shock in a very depressing Geo Quarterly, in which he wrote about Green Lantern number 97, 98, and 99, all of which, of course, he really enjoyed. He mentions that in Green Lantern number 97 that he does believe, like I did, that Allison was definitely coming on to Kyle, which I I can't imagine why she wouldn't be. Kyle's incredibly awesome. But he also uh, mentioned that he wasn't really certain why people noticed Kyle wearing the ring, and he chalked it up to the fact that there were probably a lot of fake Green Lantern rings out there, so uh, I could give it that. He mentions in Green Lantern number 98 that he agreed with J. David Weeder in saying that it didn't make any sense why Ganthet didn't give the ring back to Kyle rather than finding Carrie Wren and giving it back to her or giving the ring to her, but yeah, otherwise we wouldn't have had this storyline, so there you go. And wrapping this up, he said he enjoyed the Green Lantern Quarterly number 7, except he was really kind of upset with the Triumph of the Will storyline, which was the one with the various, the well, with the obvious Hitler analog. So, yeah, that wasn't a very fun one either. He also mentions that he picked up the Sergio Argonis Destroys DC from 1996, and he found it to be fantastic. The art and comedy were excellent, and he really recommends it, so... I will have to see if I can hunt down that Sergio Aragonis thing, because I think Aragonis does the art, and I want to say Mark Nevier, Evanier, I can't pronounce his last name, is the writer on that, so they're always fun. And finally from Scott, we've got an email entitled, Please Take Callie Back to Where He Came From. Obviously, he's talking about the horrible Callie issue. In this email, he wrote about Green Lantern 100, which he thought was, again, a really amazing story. He definitely agrees with me about the thickings of Terry Austin sort of detracting from the storyline. And he did sort of notice the not-too-subtle bromance uh, versioning between Hal and, uh, Hal and Kyle with Kyle kind of rubbing Hal's shoulders and just, yeah, the kind of creepy awkwardness I think Tom Stiege and I sort of referenced in the story. He went on to mention in Green Lantern number 101 that it was a really depressing issue. And not depressing in that it was a bad issue and he didn't like it, but that it really hit him in 
what the kids of today would say, the feels. And I have to agree, it was a really great issue that dealt with Howells having to see how his life turned out. If you were able to take a look at your future self and see that all these horrible things happened to you, and not just have a sort of breakdown, uh, I don't know how, how you'd be able to manage that, but Hal goes through it and you know, comes out a hero. Then he moves on, of course, to Green Lantern 102, which is the fight with Calabac, which is... Yeah, he didn't like it all that much either. But that does it for a few quick emails from Scott. Scott, I appreciate you writing in. I'm sorry I had to sort of barrel through those, but I've got a few more for you from you that I'll read on the next couple of episodes. So please don't worry. I will be getting to your email soon. I've also got a couple other ones I'd like to read before I get finished here. One is from a new writer, Drew Anderson, and he wrote in on Greenlander number 100, and his email went, Hi, Sean. First time emailing, but I've been enjoying your show since I learned about it a few months back. I'm a huge Golden Age fan, particularly of Alan Scott. That's completely awesome. So I've been digging the coverage of the Green Lantern Corps quarterly and the Flash Green Lantern Faster Friends, and I'm glad you're covering Hearts of Darkness now. And before I forget, congrats on making it to and past 100 episodes. Well, thanks, Drew. It, it was really... You know, I don't want to say that it was anything small. I mean, I know a lot of podcasts out there don't make it to 100 episodes, and I'm glad that I did. But I'm one of these kind of people that, you know, when I start something, I like to finish it. And the entire idea was to cover the Green Lantern comics from the beginning of the Hal Jordan run in the late 1980s up until or the actually the early 1990s until the end of Kyle Raider's run and the beginning of Rebirth. So. I'm going to try and make sure that I keep on schedule. Uh, as far as I know, I've got everything planned out for the uh, rest of this year, and uh, I've even worked it out where I've got an end date for the show. So uh, I guess that's kind of depressing. Anywho, going back to the email, Drew says, On that point, I was prompted to write you and your Tom... Let me read that again. I was prompted to write by your and Thomas's discussion of GL100, specifically where you wondered how Hal was able to use Kyle's ring since it's supposedly keyed to Kyle's DNA. I seem to recall someone asking that it in a letters column a few issues later, I believe the answer they gave that was since Kant that created Kyle's ring from the fragments of Hal's ring, that which was technically Malvolio's ring, not the name one remembers that story, <laughs> trust me, Thomas DJ does, Hal was able to use it too. I guess it's as good an explanation as any, and yeah, I'll give it to that, and the fact that it might have been Hal's, or at least a part of Hal's ring, makes it work but uh yeah it just kind of felt a bit awkward at the time back to the email uh drew says frankly i always thought the bigger question was how kyle survived sinestro skewering with a spear yes the old geo rings acted to save their wearers from mortal harm but i think that meant that they'd throw up a shield or whisk you away if you're unconscious it didn't literally make you unkillable Considering Sinestro used a yellow spear, Kyle should have been D-E-A-D there. Oh well, still a cool bait-and-switch. Yeah, I think they play fast and loose with the whole mortal harm thing with the Green Lantern ring, but I think it works within the storyline, so I'll, I'll give them a pass that, yeah, getting stabbed with a spear should have mm, probably done some damage to you even though it was a ring construct one. But within the confines of the story, it, it works. He mentions, One last thing, no idea if you're looking for suggestions or other quote-unquote extra issues to cover, but Justice Society of America, number 9, from 1993, features an Alan Scott-Guy Gardner fight back when Guy had his yellow ring. It's not great showing for Guy, to be honest. He's at the height of his quote-unquote jerk-ass characterization, plus the entire world's been brainwashed to hate the JSA, so Guy's pretty much in the punch-first, ask-questions-never mode. Eh, not my favorite version of Guy. But Alan does utterly take him to school, which is fun. Then there's that Alan Scott Batman story, Guardian, from Gotham Knights number 10, explaining why Alan stayed retired even after the superhero Blacklist ended. Really great art and a terrific story to boot. I may have to go uh, look into those, I don't know if I'll cover them on the show, but I definitely want to go read them, because if it's the JSA stuff that, uh, oh, those coming out that, uh, oh, Lee something, I can't remember his last name, but Lee and, uh, 
Mike Paraback was doing the art for, I definitely want to go check that out. I found a couple of those issues when I was up in Florida uh, hunting around with Scott Gardner and the dollar bins, and those were fun reads. Drew finishes up saying, anyway, uh, like I said, no idea if you're interested in covering it, but just a couple of suggestions. Either way, keep up the good work, and I look forward to even more GL goodness to come. Well, thanks, Drew. Thanks for writing in. I'm glad you're listening to the show, and I'm glad you're writing in. It's always good to hear letters from from new-time listeners, from any listeners. It's one of the things that makes podcasting just a barrel of fun. And then to wrap things up for this email section, we've got one from the man, the myth, the legend, my good friend and co-host of the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror over at Two True Freaks and host of Earth Destruction Directive over at the same site. Ladies and gentlemen, it's it's my privilege to read an email from Mr. Luke Giaconetti. And his email is entitled Beta Clubs and Giant Capes. He writes saying, Sean, hey man, I want to drop you a quick line and say that I've really been enjoying your coverage of the Emerald Knight storyline from the pages of Green Lantern. The adventures of Kyle and a time-displaced young Hal have been a lot of fun to hear. I never took much side in the Hal versus Kyle debate. I like both of them personally, but personally, I always dug Alan Scott. So seeing the two of them working together, even in a sort of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey sort of way, shout out to the Hoochoo Freaks. I didn't want to comment on your assessment of Calabac as a character who shows up, gets beaten up, and then retreats. Like a lot of fourth world characters, Calabac is difficult to effectively work into the larger DC universe outside of the fourth, fourth world setting. The fourth world characters are archetypical in a lot of ways, which makes sense as Kirby was trying to create something akin to a classical mythology. As a character, Calabac is essentially, I'm sorry, is essentially defined by what he is not, which is to say, he is defined by the fact that he is not Orion. Orion is the favored son of Darkseid the one born to be truly loved. Calabac is the unwanted son, born to his second wife, who he despised. Calabac doesn't have much personality because he doesn't need one. He exists perpetually to challenge Orion in order to win his father's favor. But as Orion is the one destined to kill Darkseid, there is no way Calabac can overcome him. His function is there to serve the larger fourth world story, so it doesn't have much to stand on as a solo villain. So yes, in the larger DCU, he becomes a plug-and-play bruiser, there to serve the purpose of he did in fighting Hal at Ferris Aircraft, show up, fight the hero, put the hero over, boom tube out of there. That's kind of a sad existence for the character, but it, it makes sense. Which is unfortunate, Luke goes on to say, because Calabac is a very cool character in the fourth world setting, but unfortunately very generic in the DCU. Just a big tough guy with a beta club. I also wanted to briefly touch on the Alan Scott Sentinel's gigantic cape. Oh, this should be fun. One of the most unfortunate side effects of the image revolution in the early 1990s was Spawn Cape Syndrome. Mm-hmm, I know where we're going here. The way that Todd McFarlane drew Spawn's insanely long cape made a big impression on the industry, both on the fan side and the creator side. So anyone who could possibly have a really long cape suddenly got a Spawn-style cape. Poor Alan Scott was no exception. I never particularly liked this costume for Alan, but it does keep, but it does always keep a spot in my mind, tying him to this particular era. Looking forward to hearing more of the Emerald Knights, and whenever the heck we're going to go from here. Keep up the good work. Well, Luke, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed the Emerald Knights storyline. I hope you enjoyed the issue that we did back when we covered, uh, I think, issue 105 and Iron Lantern. I know issue 105 was pretty good, but... Iron Lantern was just amazing. It was one of the most fun reads I've had in a long time. And Luke, I have to thank you so much for cueing me into that. If you guys can find an issue of Iron Lantern, even if you have to go to like my comic shop or eBay or whatever, if you're a fan of Green Lantern or a fan of Iron Man, go pick it up because it is just so much fun. And I have to agree with Luke, as he said at the end of the episode. Why is there not an issue two of this? I would so love to read that. But that does it for emails. I'm going to close up the email bag. I've got a few more that I'm going to read uh, in their entirety on the next episode. But thank you, everyone, for writing in. If you'd like to write into the show, the email address, as always, is just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. And I will be giving that contact information out at the end of the show just as well. But for right now, 
We're going to take a break from the email bag, close it up, and head into our coverage of Green Lantern number 111. Green Lantern 111 was cover dated April 1999 and released on February 10, 1999, according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. The cover price was $1.99 US and $3.25 Canada, and the title this time out was Fatal Attraction. Not the Glenn Close thing. The writer was Ron Mars, penciler was Daryl Banks, inker was Terry Austin, colors and separation Rob Schwager, letterer Chrissy Leopolis, assistant editor Harvey Richards. Man, that's a new one been going through assistant editors. Uh, but the editor, of course, still was Kevin Dooley. Streaking through the lower atmosphere, the Man of Steel spies a flaming object heading towards Earth. Upon co closer inspection, he finds that it is actually an alien spaceship, and we find that this is the Man of Steel, literally, as a robotic replica of Superman breaches the ship's hull to investigate. The android Action Ace strolls to the ship and soon comes across a trophy case of Green Lantern memorabilia. But before he can access the database at the Fortress of Solitude, he is run through the chest with a spear wielded by Green Lantern Huntress, Fatality. The last survivor of the planet Zanchi electrifies the weapon and destroys the robot, saying that she has no time to waste on the likes of you. She is here to kill Green Lantern. Cut to the Jade Princess, a Chinese restaurant where Jon Stewart, his girlfriend Marin, and current Green Lantern Jenny Lynn Hayden are dropping in for a dinner date. After some awkwardness with the Major D, the trio are seated and discuss the goings-on in their lives. Jenny talks about losing her powers and Kyle giving her a new Green Lantern ring. Jon mentions he's still working as an architect, and Marin bemoans the lack of excitement since the Dark Stars disbanded. But she might just get a taste of excitement very soon, as an explosion rocks the restaurant, knocking the diners out of their booth. The heroes pick themselves up to survey the damage, and find that the explosion was caused by the Evan Elf, Fatality, who says that she's returned for Green Lantern. Jenny and John wonder which Green Lantern she's talking about as they duck behind a table for cover. John tells Jenny an exposition-heavy backstory of Fatality, and realizing that she's going to have to protect her friends, Jenny rings up her uniform and begins the Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Clayland, 2011, all rights reserved, for the book. Unfortunately, Jenny gets taken out pretty quickly by Fatality, who moves on to take out John, the man responsible for her homeworld's destruction. John does some more expositing, then tries to summon the latent lantern energy to blast the baddie. Unfortunately, John is experiencing performance problems and can't tap into the Emerald Power. Fortunately, Marin distracts Fatality from spearing John by bashing her from behind with a chair. The blue-skinned babe gets a few good hits, but it isn't enough to take out the Lantern Hunter. John then tackles Fatality and suddenly is able to blast her with his dormant energy, but it isn't enough to finish the fight. John braces for the final blow, but Jade shields him for Fatality's blast, taking the fight outdoors. John rushes to Marin to check on her, and luckily she's still alive, while outside Jade is kicking ass and taking names. But just as she has Fatality subdued and some ring construct shackles, the power on her ring gives out, allowing the villain to gain the upper hand. But before Fatality can ram her spear through Jenny's unconscious body, she gets smacked in the head with a ring construct high fighter? I don't know what that is. Fired by none other than Jade Snuggle Bunny, Kyle Rayner. Back from space. Our story concludes with two yokels tooling down some backorder road. Suddenly a blinding light shocks them out of their Schlitz-fueled haze and illuminates a naked figure in the middle of the road. Exiting the truck, probably to recreate that scene from Deliverance, the two see that the naked man is none other than the 90s douchebag who got abducted by aliens last issue. Except this time, the presumed probing left him with fiery orange eyes. Story-wise, this issue was okay. There are a few questionable things going on, but nothing too egregious. However, art-wise, this is really bad. 
stakes are muddy in a lot of places, characters' proportions look off, and the inconsistency is really apparent. I really hate to keep griping about Austin's inking, but if there's anything in the book that's ruining it for me, it just has to be that. And again, I hate to keep harping on it. I know Terry Austin and John Byrne are regarded as some of the best artists out there, but obviously Terry Austin isn't a good match for Daryl Banks. It just doesn't work in this book. But let's go try and take a look at some of the more positive things in the book. We'll start off with the cover, which is a decent enough cover, but why in the world did Jenny ring up a tree trimmer to fight fatality? I mean, sure, she could have ringed up a ton of other things, but this is obviously one of those long extension pole tree trimmer things. <sighs> Except it's, you know, got a weird edge on it, but yeah, I don't get it because it even looks like it's got a little you know, motor on the end that she's holding it by the hand. So, yeah, it's it's all kind of weird. And the poses look fine. I guess, you know, it's very dynamic. It's not too out there, but I think the anatomy could be a bit off. Fatality stretching in a way that I don't think normal people should be able to stretch, but uh, we'll give it that she's alien. Maybe she can bend her spine in ways that most people can't. Page 2, as I mentioned, I guess this super robot has something to do with a story going on in Superman by Dan Jurgens. Now, I didn't get a chance to ask Michael Bradley or Mike Bailey about this, but I'm certain they're going to be covering it with, the, or Michael's going to be covering it with Jeffrey Taylor of Run from Christ to Crisis eventually once they get back into doing that. So I'll be looking forward to hear what the heck's going on with this. But the uh, one thing I do have to admit about the character design of it, the costume looks a lot like the new 52 uniform. It's got that sort of sculptured, armored look, which obviously you would think a robot would have. The only real difference is it's got a little yellow piping or sort of yellow stripes down on the legs. And plus it's got the red trunk. So a bit of different, but uh, sort of predating the new 52 Superman look, so. Take that for what you will. Page four, we get some actually pretty good art here with uh, Fatality skewering the uh, robot Superman. But it does make me wonder. I remember the last time Kyle fought Fatality in that uh, storyline back in the, I want to say in the 80s and 90s of the book. I thought at the end of that storyline, the monster had pretty much eaten her and either severed her arm or we saw her arm laying there how did she regrow it how did she reattach it are Zanshians able to regenerate limbs it just doesn't work for me but then moving on to page six and here's where the art just starts to get awful especially in this middle panel here we've got a sort of Dutch angle look at John, Jade, and Mirin coming in through the uh, door to this Chinese restaurant, and they just look awful. The inking is really thick and muddy. The characters' faces look really off, and it's a horrible gag of the Asian maitre d' sort of noticing these three these three characters of color: the green Jade or green Jenny. John Stewart, who's black, and Marin, who's blue, and him being flustered by it. So it's, I don't think it's overtly trying to be racist, but I'm certain there's a sort of awkwardness of this person who's of a different ethnicity seeing these various people of widely different ethnicities walking into his restaurant. It just, it wasn't a joke that I think sat well with me trying to skip over and try not be so negative about the things in the book, but I do have to point out another image here on page 11 of just either Banks or Austin or whatever getting the figure work wrong. And this image of Jenny on this first panel here, again, it looks like her head is moved to far too far onto one side. It looks like Basically, her head was lopped off and then placed on her shoulder almost. It's just awkward placing of it, and it really looks bad. And I, I hate to complain about the art, because I know Banks is a good artist. 
but it's just not looking good, and I don't know why, whether it's rush job or what. I, I just can't stop complaining about the art. Then moving on to page 13, we get John, again, apologizing for that albatross that he hangs around his neck of letting Zanshi blow up. Uh, it It's the thing that defines John more than anything, and it keeps being brought up in the book, and we get it, John, you're sorry about it. But I guess it's a motivation to the character of fatality, so we, we have to address it here. Page 16, panel 2. Fatality surmises here that John's power only manifests itself when someone else is in danger, not himself being in danger. So that could be it. I can't remember exactly what's going on with John's power, but I'm certain we'll deal with it somewhere down the line. But then moving on to page 19, panel 2, we get something that's actually kind of neat here. Uh, Fatality has thrown her spear at Jade, and it sort of uh, swings back around and arcs back around to her hand, sort of a la Thor's hammer. So I thought that was a kind of neat thing that she could have a recall device in her spear. So I'll give it, I'll give it that. That's kind of a cool concept in the book. But the uh, cool concept, unfortunately, is completely obliterated by the art on page 21 of these two sort of yokels tooling down the backwater road. Uh, if you could just see this page, you would just be embarrassed. And I, 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 it's just muddy when the bright light flashes of the alien ship depositing the naked guy there. It, it's just awful. The characters' faces look weird. When you get close up with their wide eyes, the eyes are pointing different directions. It's just really, really bad art. It, it makes baby Jesus cry. But that's really all the notes I have. I really didn't have all that many specific notes here because I would have just ended up complaining about every panel of art or every page and panel of art in the book, and I just don't want to do that. I don't want to tear these books down. But essentially this is probably one of the worst issues I've seen in a while. Story-wise, it was just okay. But art-wise, it just it made me sad. It, it's still not issue 37 bad, but I don't think you can get much worse than issue 37. Don't go back and look at that one. Oh, that was bad. But maybe there'll be some redemption in some of the ads that we have in the comic, so let's go ahead and take a look at that. The front inside cover is kind of a weird one. It's a red bowling ball with a sort of sunburst image or a, like a circle with four little or five little dots surrounding it. And underneath it is painted the letters I-Y-D-K-Y-D-G. And I had to look it up and I found out this was an advertisement for Coca-Cola because there was no little, uh, little blurbs on the side of the uh, advertisement like they'd have for uh, Got Milk depicting who was the character in the image. I think it's for Coca-Cola and the little... Starburst image in the middle is supposed to be a Coke can with uh, bubbles or whatever coming off of it. And the an, an acronym for it, or acronym I think is the word for it, is if you don't know, you don't get it. Or if you don't know, you don't go. So, yeah, it, it's a weird advertisement. Very, very minimalist and very inexplainable. And then a few pages in, we get another one of the ads with the same sort of symbol and the same letters I-Y-D-K-Y-D-G. Except this time it looks like it's a stereo speaker. Just sort of the grill of it. Uh, an open stereo speaker. So, yeah. It's perplexing. Then a few pages in, we get uh, Superman and Batman, the world's finest. It's a 10-issue epic by Carl Kessel, Dave Taylor, and Robert Campanella. Hmm. World's Finest. I hope I get to talk about World's Finest sometime. That'd be kind of cool. Then a little bit further on, we get Now the Future Can Be in Your Hands. It's the Legion of Super PVC figures, uh, standing approximately four inches high. And we've got Chameleon Boy, Saturn Girl, Cosmic Boy, Colossal Boy, Brainiac 5, Lightning Lad, and Mon-El. And... Uh, they're not bad sculpts. They're all kind of 
I don't know, they look kind of cheesy. And the set runs for $39.95. I think you would probably be better suited. They're not quite... Actually, they're not really even quite as good as the uh, DC Universe type figures that they've been putting out a while back for the uh, DC Animated Series, but... I guess, you know, if you wanted a chance to own Legion of Superheroes figures, this would probably be your only time to get them. After that, we get a two-page splash of uh, a video game called Battle Tank. You drive a tank, you destroy major cities, you rescue beautiful women. Welcome to the world of Battle Tank for the Nintendo 64 and the 3DO. Yes, the uh, wonderful system that was the 3DO. Don't you remember? Everyone had one of those. And by everyone, I mean no one did. But then we get a house ad here. It's a strange world. Let's keep it that way. It's the Warren Ellis John Cassidy series, Planetary. And issue one was coming out in February of 1999. I think Andy and Michael covered this on one of their very early issues. It, it might have been this or might have been Transmetropolitan. I'm not certain if they covered Planetary. But I know Warren Ellis is one of uh, Andy's... Maybe not favorite writers, but one of his more liked writers for independent comics. And I've heard really good stuff about Planetary. So maybe I'll have to check that out uh, in my uh, eventual reading that I'll be doing after I finish up these shows. The subscription ad has a... Uh, I can't remember if it's the Paul Pelletier Hal Jordan or if it's the one, the Peter Krause one. Because it looks like the Peter Krause one from the uh, Power Shazam issue that J. David Weeder and I covered. But uh, it's Hal Jordan with his fist out, uh, you know, firing a green beam. Uh, and it's an order. If you order a subscription form, you'd get an erasable memo board absolutely free with Superman and Batman on it. So not only get 12 issues of the uh, of your favorite comics, but an erasable uh, memo board. So kind of neat. Then they also have a, a one-page advertisement. Well, not really advertisement, but... Uh, in memoriam for Bob Kane, who I guess passed away on November 3rd of uh, 1998. And it's written by Jeanette Kahn, and it's obviously praising Bob Kane and his single-handed development of the character of Batman. I'm going to step quietly away from that comment right here now. Then the back inside cover is an, sorry, an advertisement for the Justice Society Returns, and I don't know whether these are reprints of their original stories, but it's uh, they kind of have the look of the uh, old Golden Age comics, uh, including Star Comics, Adventure Comics, All-American Comics, National Comics, Sensation Comics, Smash Comics, Star Spangled Comics, Thrilling Comics, and All-Star Comics as well. It says the world's first super team is back in, nine, in a nine blockbuster specials. So, I don't know whether these are reprints or new stuff, but the artwork's really nice. It's not Parabek doing it. It looks... It looks kind of Darwin Cookish, but uh, I don't think he would have been on the books. But it's good artwork nonetheless, and it's the Justice Society, so you can't have a problem with that. And then the back outside cover is an advertisement for Sprite. Hosted by Voltron. Not only by Voltron, but hip-hop artists coming together as one to put a stop to player-haters of the culture. Including such fine rap artists as Fat Joe, Goody Mob, African Bombada, Bombada and Jazzy J, Common, and Mac-10. I don't get you, Sprite. You know, you're a refreshing beverage, but sometimes I don't get your ads. But that does it for this comic. I'm going to take a quick break, plug a couple of promos, and when we get back, we'll get to a much better comic in the guise of Green Lantern, the new core, number two. The Bronze Age of Comics. An era largely ignored as far as Superman goes, and an era that some consider to still be part of the Silver Age. Sure, a lot of people know about the Kryptonite Nevermore storyline, where all the Kryptonite on Earth is turned to iron and Clark Kent goes from a newspaper reporter to a TV reporter. Then there are the Alan Moore stories, for the man who has everything and whatever happens to the man of tomorrow. But in an era that lasted 15 years, surely there's more to the Bronze Age than that, right? Well, my name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every other week, I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era of Superman in the Bronze Age. 
Featuring such stories as the return of Jonathan Kent, two meetings with the Amazing Spider-Man, the Phantom Zone miniseries, the enlarging of Krypton, and more. Plus, J. David Weeder also joins in to take a look at Superboy's Bronze Age adventures. So join in the fun at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Hi, this is Professor Allen. And when I'm not listening to an awesome podcast, like this one, I'm co-hosting an awesome podcast, The Book Guy Show. Every week, we cover book news, book reviews, comic books, audiobooks, audio dramas, and podcasts. Search for The Book Guys Show on iTunes or come visit us at bookguys.ca. And we have returned to take a look at what I hope will be the much better, much more fun, much more Chuck Dixon-y Green Lantern, the new core number two. This one was cover dated 1999, released on February 17th of 1999. The cover price was $4.95 US and $7.95 Canada. Wow. The writer was Chuck Dixon, as I said. Penciler was Scott Eaton. Inkers were Annabelle Rodriguez and Ray Kreising. Letterer was Janice Chang. Colors and Separations were by Chris Chuckery, and the editor was Kevin Dooley. In the Vastness of Space, the Hamster Squadron, better known as G-Force, not to be confused with Gotcha Man, which was known as G-Force in the United States, they witness a massive cosmic storm nearly a light year wide and traveling at one half the speed of light and accelerating. The intensely cute and furry warriors desperately try and outrun the energy wave, but it's too late as their ship is blown to pieces. Cut to Kyle, Anya, Hammeroon, and Girl traveling in Kyle's reconstruct ship. Fatigue is getting the best, better of the Last Lantern, and rather than taking a nap and letting everyone die in the vacuum of space as the ship dissolves around them, Kyle takes some navigational advice from Hammeroon, heading towards a Samaritan house on a nearby moon. Kyle gets some sleep while the rest of the crew chows down, while Hammeroon covetously looks upon Kyle's lantern. Girl tells Ham not to even think about it when the discussion of the lantern larceny is broken up by Anya commenting on the arrival of Judge Sewell and his police force. Luckily, Kyle has woken up from his nap and goes out to plead their case with Sewell, but the negotiations are cut short as the energy wave from the beginning of the book speeds towards the sanctuary planet. Knowing that he only has moments to spare, Kyle rings up a protective bubble to shield the sentience, barely managing to keep the anomaly from destroying them all. After the wave has passed, Sewell continues on his quest to make sure that the Quartet are brought back to face their judgment, something which Hamroon feels strongly against as he tackles the unbearable bailiff. Carl breaks up the fight while Kyle suggests that they go and find out what was behind this bizarre disturbance, and the best way to do that for, would be for each of them to take one of the Green Lantern rings that Kyle has duplicated. The group charge the rings with their own unique versions of the Oath, then head out into space in an awesome splash page of awesomeness. Sewell tells Kyle that the path of the energy wave would lead it directly into the heart of the galaxy, populated by trillions of sentient life forms, and Kyle replies that he understands the stakes. Garl mentions that he might be able to help out a little bit more if he had a ring for each hand, something that greatly amuses Kyle. But the levity is broken up as Anya warns the lanterns of some attacking spacecraft. The lanterns engage the ship, but the attackers shift their energy to the yellow spectrum and end up blasting Girl with a powerful beam. Seeing that the shot only grazed him, Kyle and Anya take the, the attack to the aggressor ship, ripping its hull open and spilling the space-suited bodies into space. Screw these out better. Taking a better look at his foes, Kyle sees that they are all too familiar. As the lanterns mop up the last remnants of the battle, Kyle relates to them that these attackers are none other than the forces of the person Kyle gave his first ring to, Magan, Van, and Troctus. After a quick cut to the Vian homeworld to see what Magan and his giant brain and the brain and the bubble Photus think of the situation, we get the new core bemoaning Kyle's decision to give a Vaughn a power ring. But the personal belittling will have to wait as Magan and the entirety of his fleet attacks Kyle and the core. Kyle rings up an attack ship to engage the forces while the rest of the Corps heads to the planet to try and find its strong point. Magan orders his forces to file on 
fire on Kyle's ship, shifting their beams to the yellow spectrum. But Kyle pulls a fast one on the Emerald Tyrant, feigning being wounded, then punching the f*** out of him, letting him know that the whole yellow thing doesn't affect him. As Kyle and McCann continued the McFightenstein, the new core witness an errant turret on the Vaughn planet, firing on its own fighters. Thinking that they might have found an ally, the lanterns head to the Sentinel and find a mortally wounded Vaughn manning the gun. It appears that Photus, the giant brain in a bottle, is using a psychic link to keep the warrior alive long enough to tell the lanterns its location. Sewell thinks this is all a trap, but the core don't have much of a choice, so they head to the direction that the Vaughn told them to go. As the group nears the location, Anya receives a telepathic signal directing them to the heart of Magan's fortress. Bypassing the guards, who are having their own pain receptors overloaded by Photus, the lanterns reach the giant brain in the jar, who tells them he can stop the antimatter wave that the lanterns encountered earlier on. Sewell is still unconvinced, but they reluctantly decide to aid Photus by removing its inhibitor. Unfortunately, just as they start to free the big brain, Magan's forces attack, and Hamroon heads out to try and buy the others some time. Back with Kyle, Magan is monologuing about how he overthrew the planet once he had the ring, then moved it near the event horizon of a gravity well, allowing the planet to become trapped in time. There he spent 20 standard years building an army and weapons to conquer the galaxy. And when he moved the planet out of the event horizon, it caused the antimatter storm which will wipe away all of the life in this sector, leaving him the ruling power. But Kyle didn't still listen out of it as he blasts Magan with his ring construct missiles, finally getting the despot on the ropes. But things aren't going so well for Hamroon, as he's low on power and forces are still blasting away at the fortress. Tapping in the last reserve of his ring's power, Ham makes a latch diff's effort, collapsing the entrance on the invading forces and himself in the process. Inside, the remaining lanterns have released the inhibitor, stopping the antimatter wave but in the process, setting up a self-destruct sequence for the entire planet. Kyle rejoins his team with Begon in tow, but with the planet about to go critical, the lanterns have to use all of their power to shield themselves from the blast. Crisis averted, Kyle removes the remnant of the planet to a more hospitable area of space. Some time has passed, and Kyle has taken the rings back from Sewell, Garl, and Anya. After dropping off Magan at Roundway Prison, Kyle admits to the former Lanterns that he's not quite ready to start up the Green Lantern Corps on his own. Kyle asks what the group will do now, that they aren't wielders of the most powerful weapon in the galaxy, and the trio say that they'll keep fighting crime in their own inevitable fashion. Proud that he did some good in the vast cosmos, Kyle heads back to Earth, but not before carving out a memorial statue for Hamroon. Green Lantern, Hero, and Friend. Thank God for Chuck Dixon on this book, because it really kind of brought me out of the funk that I was feeling with the Green Lantern book. There is not really as much characterization this time out in the book, but like before, it's an amazingly fun read. Like I said, Chuck Dixon keeps the action moving, and the art by Eaton is far superior to the Banks and Austin work in the Green Lantern book. Which is really, again, I hate to keep harping on this, really disappointing, because I think I had a few negative things to say about Eaton when he was drawing the issues during the, uh, oh lord, I want to say during the Emerald Knight storyline, or maybe it was, yeah, it was Emerald Lights where uh, he drew that part where Parallax came to the Warrior's Bar and beat up John and Guy, so the the artwork here is great, the story is wonderful, I need to pick up more stuff by Chuck Dixon. As far as I know, the only real things that I have in my collection, which granted it is pretty limited of Chuck Dixon is his little run on Guy Gardner, the two Robin miniseries, and just a couple of other ancillary things here and there. Chuck Dixon is becoming one of my favorite writers of this time period, and I need to get into more of his stuff. Now, this being a prestige format uh, comic, I'm not certain how, how likely it would be you'd be able to find this in the dollar bin, but if you can find it anywhere cheap, definitely go pick it up. Even if you can find it for like a couple of bucks, it is well worth it. A really good Green Lantern story. 
But let's go ahead and go into our general notes for the book. The cover is, well, it's not as iconic as the first cover with all the lanterns standing around. It's kind of dynamic with the uh, fight between uh, Magan and Kyle here with the rest of the lanterns looking on. But there is a bit of wonkiness uh, in Kyle's image. If you look at him, uh, at least his left and right knees look like they've been, like his legs have been decapitated, or not decapitated, his legs have been removed from the knee down. But other than that, the cover does its job. The uh, characters all look good, and uh, the coloring is really good as well. And speaking of coloring, moving into the book, uh, page two, panel one, we get this wonderful image of the sort of cosmic storm that's going on that was created by McGann moving the planet into the black hole using the Fothus brain thing or whatever you want to call it. It's comic book science. But it's it's just this beautiful sort of melange of purples and blues and oranges. It really looks amazing. And I think I've I think the reason I like it so much is it's got a the clouds got a sort of demonic skull look to it. It kind of reminded me of that image from the Flash Gordon movie where the pilots are in the plane and Flash Gordon is in the back and you see Ming's face come towards the uh, pilots and crash into it and that's what causes them to disappear or whatever. So I like that. The next page, page three, panel one, I was kind of confused. This was a bit where Eaton's art got a little wonky. Kyle's drawn to look less like Kyle and more like Captain Stern from the heavy metal movie. His uh, face is a lot longer and his nose is a bit off. And Plus, at the first look, I was kind of wondering why Kyle has his ring on his left hand because throughout most of the book, he has the ring on his right hand until I went and looked through the book and realized that this is the secondary ring that he has. So this isn't his ring. This is the Hal Jordan ring. So there you go. Page four, panel three. I enjoy the fact that the character of Hammeroon is still a sort of roguish, scoundrel-type character, and when Kyle's asleep at his little safe house, he thinks to, well, he thinks out loud uh, how much he could probably get if he stole and sold the uh, Green Lantern battery. So it's nice painting of the characters that Chuck Dixon does in making them heroic, but still keeping true to their character, their like I say, Hammeroon has this sort of Han Solo type feel, and I enjoy that in Dixon's writing. And again, speaking of Dixon's writing, you know, page seven here, it brings me back to the idea that Dixon kind of wanted to write an X-Men type story here, and in the fact that uh, Anya has to deliver the, the very Colossus-like line of Beauchemois, I guess that's how you pronounce I don't know how you pronounce it, but it's the one that Colossus would always say, and it basically means, oh, God, or whatever. So the whole Russian thing, it it has that sort of X-Men, Claremont, Colossus-type feel. Page 9, we get another great example of Kyle using his power against the greater force as the energy wave comes across this sanctuary planet and destroys it, and Kyle is having to maintain this bubble over the area where they're in so it doesn't get devastated. And uh, Eaton really sells the the struggle that Kyle's going through to try and maintain this energy bubble to keep these people safe. So it, again, shows how powerful of a character Kyle is becoming, and it, it, the artwork really sells it. It's, it's good stuff. Moving on to page 12, after Kyle has passed out the rings to the lantern, and they've all... Well, they haven't suited up yet, but they've uh, got their rings on and they're giving their oaths. I like how the individual oaths are very specific to each character, with Anya being one of a very 1960s Soviet bloc Russian thing going for social justice and the future of workers everywhere. Girls being sort of, uh, well, kind of brutish, but uh, saying that he's not going to beat the crap out of people is like I swear only to do right the right thing and not hurt anyone uh who doesn't deserve it already uh Sewell's being very law abiding to bring order and chaos law to the lawless and light to shadow which is somewhat like the Green Lantern Oath and then of course Hamrun has to be the, sort of the snarky one and he says to protect the weak and to have the guts to hunt down the bad guys and kick there and before he can get out the uh, profane word everyone shouts him down so uh, just Dixon's writing on this book is just such a fun thing to read. It's 
Again, I've got to read more Chuck Dixon. Then moving on to the next page, page 13, we've got a sort of three-quarters page splash of all the lanterns flying out in space with their new uniforms and carrying the lanterns and everything. And it's just glorious. All of them have these huge smiles on their faces. They know that they're going to have to go out and tackle this uh, world-shattering thing and then try and find out what this energy wave is. But they all look like they're having fun. Even the very law-abiding, very legally-focused Sewell has got a bit of his a bit of a grin on his face, and Eaton just captures the idea of how much fun it must be to be a Green Lantern, to, to fly through space, and to to have this kind of ability to do whatever you want. It, it's it's glorious art here. I really really love it. Page sixteen as Kyle and Anya go forward to try and attack the opposing forces. I find it again kind of amusing and also part of Anya's character that she decides to use constructs of a hammer and sickle to uh, fight against the evil forces. So yeah, again, her communist upbringing really showing forth and Chuck Dixon having some fun with it. Well, Dixon and Eden in the artwork. So good stuff. But then on the next page, well, I understand it because Kyle of course has been known to be a big anime fan, but on this top panel, Kyle has some of the goofiest-looking anime armor. It looks very much like the character of the Giver, which I'm not specifically knowledgeable about what what came first, the movie or the anime, but it's very much a Giver-looking thing with the big wings on his uh, helmet and just, yes, very anime. Then as the fight progresses on page 23, we get an amazing awesome splash page of Kyle ringing up this giant gloved iron fist on his hand, on his ring hand, and just punching McGann in the face. And the, the background's got these orange, this very orange bright look with speed lines going through it and the energy coming off the glove and McGann just flying back at the top of the page. It's great artwork by Eaton. And, and the look on Kyle's face, the determination in him gritting his teeth, that he's putting all of his power in this punch. It is just some... Uh, the contrast in the artwork in these two books is just day and night, and I'm loving this so much. I can't say enough about it. Moving in a bit further in the book, on page 28, the way Fothis, or I guess his name is... Yeah, Fothis, the big brain thing from the planet, is communicating with the Green Lanterns is really pretty creepy. He's basically controlled one of the bonds to kill all the rest of them and in the process the one that he was using to kill all of them has gotten a spike or something impaled through his head and is dying and you don't see it until you know like the bottom panels but he's talking to them and he turns and you see this thing sticking in his head and slowly he starts to die and that's how Fotis you know ends his communication it's it's a creepy moment that's not too gory. Again, if this were done in modern comics, I'm certain, you know, it would be much, much more horrific. But it really works and sells out that sort of creep factor of this this dead thing or this dying thing talking to you. It, it's also kind of reminiscent of the scene in the Dead Man issue of Green Lantern where Dead Man was inhabiting the dead girl and having him creep out the uh, creepy lesbian killer. Well, not killer who was a lesbian, but the guy who wanted to kill them. You know what I mean. Pages 30 through 37, it's a lot of monologuing by both Fothus, the big brain thing, and then McGann afterwards. And we get kind of the explanation that McGann, after he enslaved his world, created the brain and then caused it to move his planet to an event horizon near a black hole where he was trapped in time and was able to build more weaponry. And then when he released himself, it caused this energy wave. And, uh, who knows? Science. That's what it was. And then, like I said, after that, McGann gets his chance to monologue and tells pretty much the same story, adding his own little points of view. So, yeah, a, a bit of talky talk, but it's a 48-page issue, and it doesn't feel like they're actually drawing out the story. It's it's necessary information that they're trying to get here. 
page 42, as Hamroon is trying to fend off the uh, Vagan's forces or the Vaughn forces from entering the Citadel where the rest of the Lanterns are, it's not really explicit what he does. He says on the prior page that he's running out of Lantern energy, and he taps into the quote-unquote last reserve of his energy that's supposed to protect him in case of the power running out. And I don't know whether he intentionally brings down the opening in the Citadel on himself to stop the forces to get in, or whether this was an accident or or what, but it does end up killing him, which is which is upsetting because Hammeroon was one of the interesting characters and one of the more fun characters in this book. But that leads us to the wrap-up on page 47 where Cal takes the rings back and essentially the remaining characters of Sewell, Garl, and Anya feel that they're going to just go into a sort of their own personal protection, their own sort of limited edition Justice League out in space. And I really like that concept that even though they're not Green Lanterns, they're still going to be working towards the forces of good. The unfortunate thing is, outside of this book, I don't think they're ever referenced or mentioned again. Which is sad, because again, Dixon did a really good job of drawing these characters and giving them interesting characteristics and sort of a personality that I think you'd like to read and would be a fun bit of addition to a Green Lantern comic. But the story ends with Kyle carving out a sort of memorial headstone for Hammeroon on what I'm assuming are the remnants of uh, the Vaughn planet, and it's a nice ending to this issue. I, I really enjoyed this. Um, there are some times when these prestige format books just are kind of meh. I remember Professor Allen reading the uh, Adam Strange book and him kind of feeling a bit conflicted about it, but I think this is a good example of the prestige format books that the DC that DC did in the 90s and did really well. I think it's definitely serviced by having Chuck Dixon write it because, like I've said before, I don't think Chuck Dixon could do any wrong. But that does it for this issue. That does it for this episode. Next time on an all-new episode of Just One of the Guys, we're going to be taking a look at, of course, the next issue in Green Lantern, number 112, where Kyle is back to take down Fatality again, and hopefully save Jade and John in the process. Plus, we're going to start taking a look at some of the books that I should have covered when, well, they were coming out, including annual number one of Green Lantern, which (sighs) is a story which crosses over with the Eclipso storyline. So yeah, Eclipso, the darkest within, next time on Just One of the Guys. I'm certain someone's looking forward to it. Might not be me. But until then, everyone, thanks for listening, thanks for downloading, and make sure you do come back for the next episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Goodbye, everyone. Have a good weekend. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two, and you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook, and now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new DeMontecourt contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast.
The opening music for today's show was John and Al Kaplan with their song, I'm Not Going to Be Ignored, Dan, from Fatal Attraction the Musical. Now, as you can probably imagine, this is a YouTube creation. John and Al Kaplan are the people who brought you the Arnold Schwarzenegger opus, If It Bleeds, We Can Kill It, which I think I used on a previous episode of Just One of the Guys. So unfortunately, this stuff can't really be bought from Amazon.com. But what can be bought from Amazon.com are DVDs of Fatal Attraction or DVDs of Predator. In fact, Blu-rays of Predator might even be a better choice. And if you want to go to Amazon.com to pick up these DVDs or Blu-rays, the best way to do it would be to go through the link at 2TrueFreaks.com. Hit the homepage at 2TrueFreaks.com, click the Amazon banner at the upper left corner of the page, and you'll be transported to Amazon.com where you can buy Blu-rays, DVDs, electronics, games, gaming devices, anything that the modern entertainment geek could want, and all at ridiculously low prices. And, of course, when you buy through the link at 2TrueFreaks.com, a small amount of your purchase price goes back to help the website. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really, really helps us out. So anytime you think about purchasing something at Amazon.com, make sure you go through the link at 2TrueFreaks.com. <laughs> 